Welcome to the United States of Health blog podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, North American Executive Editor of The Lancet. The fourth paper of our new Lancet series, America, Equity and Equality in Health, is called Mass Incarceration, Public Health, and Widening Inequality in the USA. In this podcast, we'll talk with author Chris Wildeman. Dr. Wildeman, mass incarceration as a phenomenon has been around for a few decades, and in that time has had an extremely destructive social impact. But to put this in context, can you give us some history about the social and political underpinnings that led to the increased rates of incarceration and how it became a racial issue? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, I think there are a couple of really important parts to your question. I'm just going to tackle the racial component first, because I think one of the things that folks don't really understand about incarceration in the U.S. is that there have always been massive racial disparities in incarceration since we first started collecting statistics on this. In the late 1880s, you saw black-white disparities in incarceration of 6 to 1 to 8 to 1, which map on really closely to contemporary racial disparities in incarceration. And so when we think about mass incarceration's consequences, for the African-American community especially, what we need to keep in mind is that it's driven by large existing racial disparities and incarceration leading to more and more African-American folks experiencing incarceration as the actual rates of incarceration have dramatically increased. So while racial disproportionality and incarceration is not new, racial disproportionality and incarceration at very, very high rates is in fact a really new phenomenon. And so to address the first question, you were curious about essentially sort of what sorts of factors led to mass incarceration. And I think one of the things that's interesting to talk about first here is that we actually have a much better sense of what mass incarceration is and what its consequences are than what actually caused it. Researchers working in this area talk about a whole host of different factors that led to the onset of mass incarceration. I just want to focus here on a couple of things that there seems to be general agreement on. The first thing that folks are pretty broadly in agreement about is that mass incarceration was made possible in large part by deindustrialization happening in urban centers in the late 60s and early 70s as a result of deindustrialization. One of the ways that people talk about deindustrialization and how it shaped the prison boom or mass incarceration is that it essentially provided the raw material for mass incarceration to happen. So it was only after you have this large pool of unemployed and marginally employed men living in neighborhoods of concentrated disadvantage that you could even start to think about having mass incarceration occur. The other part that people pretty consistently think of as driving mass incarceration is the combination of laws that increased the probability of experiencing incarceration contingent upon being convicted of a crime. So legal shifts that essentially took folks from receiving probation to receiving a relatively short jail or prison sentence. And then the second thing that folks generally think of as driving it is very long sentences. So 
about half of the increase in the incarceration rate in the U.S. between the early 70s and the, the contemporary era is actually driven not by shifts in the number of people who experience incarceration at some point, but by how long the average stay is for folks who experience incarceration. Beyond that, there's a tremendous level of disagreement about what factors drove mass incarceration, but the consistent features of most accounts that you'll see is that they focus on the marginalized economic status of young, predominantly African-American men living in urban centers and how that marginalized economic status interacted with a growing drug trade and increasingly punitive legislation, especially around sort of drug-related crimes. Now, the one thing I, I do want to say here, which I think is really, really important for us to think about, is that there's minimal, at most, evidence that increases in criminal activity had a direct effect on changes in the incarceration rate. And so while there was a large increase in criminal activity, especially violent crime in the U.S. in the late 50s through the early 70s, it doesn't look like over the entire mass incarceration period that shifts in the crime rate actually drove shifts in the incarceration rate. And so while fear of crime may play some role in explaining how legislation got passed that led to mass incarceration, yearly shifts in criminal activity have had only a small effect in contributing to the total incarceration rate in the U.S. Your paper notes that one in three African-American men will be imprisoned and one in two African-Americans will have family currently in prison. And we know that current incarceration has deleterious effects on health. And perhaps you could discuss some of the health consequences of incarceration. Sure, absolutely. So I, I think that before I start talking about all the negative consequences of incarceration for health, which have been documented pretty extensively, as hopefully our article indicates, I want to talk a bit about the ways in which incarceration appears to actually paradoxically have some health benefits for individuals. African-American men, to use the example that gets cited the most in the research, actually have lower mortality rates in prison than they do in the general population after adjusting for other factors that have a really strong effect on mortality risk like age. And there have been sort of a whole host of reasons that folks have used to explain that sort of so-called mortality advantage African-American men have while they're incarcerated relative to men in free society. But these explanations center on the low risk of accidents and homicide, as well as overdose during incarceration, access to better medical care. Regardless of the mechanisms that appear to be driving this mortality advantage for African-American men who are incarcerated, this is a really sort of paradoxical finding that seems to not fit particularly well with the broader research literature. During incarceration, we know that mental health problems tend to get exacerbated, and so you see a pretty dramatic increase in mental health problems for folks who are currently incarcerated. And then one of the things that ends up being really interesting is that while much of the focus has been on in prison, physical and mental health for folks who are currently incarcerated, it actually looks like, in some ways, the negative health effects of having ever been incarcerated after your release are actually larger than some of those in-prison effects. And so 
you see tremendously high mortality rates for formerly incarcerated folks. Ingrid Binswanger, who's one of the medical doctors who's done the most work in this area, has shown mortality rates 12 to 13 times as high in the immediate period after release from prison. You see negative effects on cardiovascular disease and risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And then you see a whole host of detrimental effects on mental health outcomes, ranging from everything from dysthymia to major depressive disorder to a host of other serious mental health problems. And so we see these really broad sort of negative effects of mass incarceration on the individuals who experience confinement even years after they may have been released from an institution. What makes this review paper unique is that it also discusses some of the broader effects of incarceration as a public health issue. How does incarceration disproportionately affect, for example, black families in the communities, and how do the effects affect society more generally? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm glad that you noticed that this is a distinctive part of the article that, that Emily and I have tried to be pretty provocative by pushing some of these issues to the fore. There are a couple different ways to think about this. So when we think about the consequences of mass incarceration, especially for the African-American community, the things that we need to focus on first are how much more likely African-Americans are to have any family member incarcerated at some point. And one of the things that we focused on a lot in the article, which is building on research I've done, is how much more likely African-American children are to ever have a father incarcerated. And so one of the reasons that the consequences of mass incarceration for the African-American community are so much greater is because they're so much more likely to experience that event. So according to research that we cite in our article, about two in five African-American women have a currently imprisoned family member, whereas about one in eight white women have a currently imprisoned family member. When we think about these racial disparities in contact with the criminal justice system, not within a point in time and not within an entire family network, but over the entire life course and just for parents. African-American children um, born in the early 90s had a 25.1% chance of having their father go to prison at some point between their birth and their 14th birthday, whereas for white children born in those same years, the risk is about 3.6%. Because African-Americans experience the incarceration of a family member so much more often than, than non-Hispanic white Americans do, even if the effects of incarceration on the individuals are about the same size for whites and African-Americans, you still see mass incarceration having these very large effects on racial disparities in health. Building on some of the work that that I've done, we show that depending on the the child health outcome, mass incarceration has increased black-white disparities in child health problems anywhere between 10% to 45%. And so these are quite dramatic increases in racial disparity for one factor to drive things. The other thing that I think is important to think about is when we talk about the consequences of mass incarceration for inequality, we tend to focus, as I just did, on sort of racial disparities within the United States. And there's now some work suggesting that the disparities in population health may actually be more important cross-nationally than within the United States specifically. 
And so we talk a fair amount about some new papers that look at cross-national variation in incarceration rates and make the argument that mass incarceration is actually contributing to some of the relative decline that the U.S. is experiencing in terms of both life expectancy at birth and the infant mortality rate relative to other developed democracies. And so we end up building an argument that suggests that mass incarceration is really important for health inequalities not only within the United States, but also between the United States and other developed democracies. Short of major changes in incarceration rates, what can be done to improve health outcomes for incarcerated populations and by those affected by incarceration? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think there are a couple of major things that can be done, some of which actually end up getting touched on by other articles in this series. My impression is that having a stronger social safety net, especially when it comes to healthcare access, can be one of the best ways to improve the health of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals. Another thing that could possibly be especially beneficial is starting clinics, as Emily Wang, my collaborator on this article, did, where you help make sure that medication regimes that started while individuals were incarcerated are continued upon their release. These sorts of things can be especially important in terms of treatment of mental health, but they could also be more broadly important for maintaining sort of access to health care. The other thing that could potentially end up decreasing these negative consequences is providing resources to try to decrease the stigma attached to incarceration and think about ways to support successful reintegration into the community, which involves both not recidivating, so not being reincarcerated for a new crime, but also being able to gain employment and contribute to family life more broadly. And then I guess the final thing that I'd say in this regard is that because incarceration is so heavily concentrated in the most disadvantaged communities, public policies that seek to benefit all individuals residing in those most disadvantaged communities are almost certain to have positive spillover effects, both for individuals who live in those communities who, are, who haven't experienced incarceration and are not tied to individuals who have experienced incarceration, but also for the broader community of individuals who have been touched by the criminal justice system in some way. Dr. Wildeman, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for talking. The United States of Health blog podcast is written and produced by Rebecca Cooney and Aaron Van Dorn in the New York office of The Lancet. Theme music taken from Seeker by Kai Engel. To listen to more podcasts, check out usa.thelancet.com.